You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it is your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, I know we're going to talk about this later in the show, but you are returned from Cheyenne, and you look unscathed. It looks like you uh, you made it out in one piece. I did get punched with some bare knuckles. No lie. Is that true? That's true. Okay, well, I can't wait to get the story later in the show. I see you got yourself a new t-shirt. What is that? Is that a Predator t-shirt you're wearing? Well, I've had this one for a few weeks, yeah. Well, uh, it's new to me. That's all I'm saying. I mean, I think what you meant to say is I got myself a dope t-shirt. So that's not something you picked up down there in Cheyenne? No. You know what? I've never been to, to Cheyenne before, before this trip. Uh, I understand now, I feel like, why you don't hear people being like, Hey, we're going to Cheyenne this weekend. It's going to be awesome. You want to come? Is it the kind of place where you could go to a store and, like, buy a t-shirt that makes it look like you have big muscles? Because that's sort of what I imagine. I, I or mean, a t-shirt that makes you look like you have big boobs, if that's more your thing. You know, I can't 100% verify that, but it, it feels like, yeah, you is could it, probably do that. Is it the kind of place where you could go to a store and buy some badass knives? Like, some knives with some real decorative shit going on? Yes. Yeah, that's a fact. So like a giant $10,000 silver dollar bar. You know what? Yeah, basically. The the weird part was that for some reason, I don't know, they said maybe that they were concerned about violence or bomb threats or something because of this controversial bare knuckle boxing event. But at every function that they had, the press conference, the weigh-ins, the fights themselves, they had a police officer there with a canine unit. Okay. That, like, and it had like a vest and it was like patrol slash explosives dog. And yet, the dog would bark at seemingly minor provocations. Like, if somebody took the dog's picture, which happened at the press conference, the dog freaked out and barked a lot. Which, what good is your explosives detecting dog if he just barks at just regular dog shit? Because, the cops seem to have been conditioned. They they were not surprised that he was, you know, barking a whole lot and just like kind of yanking on the collar like, hey, come on. Be qu-. Like, you know, like you would do with a n- normal dog. How do we know when he's barking that it's not because there's a bomb about to go off? Like a bomb in the camera. Or somebody walking by outside with another dog. You know what? I don't want to. I'm not going to sit here on the co-main event podcast and trash talk the fine officers of the Cheyenne Police Department. But I'm going to say, if it turned out that the canine slash explosives dog that got the assignment at Cheyenne was not the number one canine slash explosives police dog in the nation, I wouldn't be that surprised. You say this one's on the trainers. Like he was not coming out tops at the canine academy, perhaps? He wasn't the top draft pick. First in his class? Yeah, that's possible. Well, Ben, this is a big, a week of big announcements for the co-main event podcast. Uh... Let's just start with this one. There won't be a co-main event podcast next week. You son of a bitch. I am going on vacation with the family. I'll be gone from Thursday to Thursday. Kind of makes it so we can't really do a show. See, this is your mistake, is going on vacation with your family. Yeah, see, I was not afforded the opportunities that some other (laughs) co-hosts of certain podcasts that shall remain nameless uh, were were afforded. And in fact... 
I think if I even raised the idea that my wife should fly across the country, granted, with our three children, rather than your two children, uh, by herself, I don't think that that would go over well. No, would not go over well for you. And as everyone who listens to this show knows, my wife is an attorney. She is smarter than I am. And I bet that she could present a convincing argument that it was, in, real... it was in my best interest <laughs> yes. to go on that trip. So you just skipped right to the part where you just do whatever she says. We reached a settlement. Yeah. And that settlement is that I'm going on the trip. And you're, you're screwing this podcast. And yeah, it, as, a, as an aside, I'm screwing over the podcast. We will return the following Monday. I think it's going to be like, what, June 18th or something like that to look ahead to uh, at next Cowboy fight, I believe. Cowboy Cerrone fighting later this month. So we'll be talking about that. Uh, but that's not the only big announcement, and the next big announcement, more positive. Correct? That's right. We have decided what we are going to do for the co-main event podcast Patreon book club. That's right. And now, with the podcast being off next week, you can use that time to decide and begin reading either Tito Ortiz's This Is Gonna Hurt or Chuck Liddell's Iceman, My Fighting Life. Because we've decided on a division of labor. That's right. I'm going to read Iceman My Life. Is that what it's called? Because I, I need to get the title right so I can find it. I think it's Iceman My Fighting Life. Oh, My Fighting Life. I'm going to get that. You're going to do the Tito Ortiz one. That's right. Which is the shorter one, and you chose it for yourself. Uh, you really, you're hung up on that. Then we will do a special podcast for Patreons only. Basically, we will both present de facto book reports. That's right. We will present our findings, frankly. Yeah. Uh, from the, I'm sure we'll have some questions for each other. From the books that we've read, and we will take questions and comments via listener mail. Is so that right? That's Kinda right. Kind of like we did for the Tank Abbott Book Club now years and years ago, uh, which was one of the greatest episodes that this podcast ever did. Yes. And I'm still told by people who listen to it that you don't ha need to have read the book to enjoy the, the book club podcast. I would wager you would enjoy it more if you didn't read the book. <laughs> but if you would like to play along with us, uh, feel free to either pick up one, or if you're feeling ambitious, both, uh, read through them, or don't. And then about a month from now, early July, is when we're going to shoot to record the uh, book club podcast where we talk about these books. And again, that will be for Patreons only. Is that for all Patreons? Yes. Maybe. Yes. All, all pay. Let's just say all Patreons. Okay, all Patreons. We don't want to lock people out of this. No. Uh, reading. It's too good. Yeah, it's going to be great. Uh, how, ben, if people aren't down with the Patreon, how do they do it? What do they do? Well, Chad, they go to patreon.com slash event and sign up. Uh, we will also have forthcoming the next edition in the Old Man in the Sea, serialized uh, MMA-themed fiction. Uh, you're going to want to check that out. Uh, and remember when we did a radio play? I do. We did that as the Christmas Spectacular this past year. Yeah. I'm just saying. Well, are you hinting that there's going to be another radio play? I'm just saying. You know, someone also hit us up on Twitter saying that we should do a streaming event for the movie Fight Valley. That's right. And you know which what? Which is a fucking great idea. And it seemed like she was hitting us up while she was watching yeah, Fight Valley. Yes. And her description, I got to say, I'm sold. Yeah. So we got, well, who's Misha Tate is in that? Misha Chris Tate. Cyborg, I believe Holly Holm. A host of, of uh, luminaries. Yeah, that's so, a power trifecta right there. Look forward to that. Yeah. In any case, we got music again this week from our friend The Fifth Element, a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. If you like what you hear on the show, you can check him out over on Twitter at The Fifth Element or Facebook.com slash The Fifth Element or SoundCloud.com slash The Fifth Element Official. And as you know, that's the word the with an A. 
Three rounds, as usual, this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, buckle up, boys. It's Ben's Bare Knuckle Boxing Bonanza, boasting big bruises, bloody bros, and busted brains. Was it bad or bodacious? And in round number two, Colby Covington, CM Punk, Holly Holm, Andre Arlovsky, and Alistair Overeem. Is it the UFC 225 undercard or just the world's weirdest office party? And in round number three, why do I get the feeling that something totally weird is going to happen during the UFC 225 main event? Is it because Yoel Romero is going to be there? It's it's because Yoel Romero is going to be there, isn't it? All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Eric Murphy, who writes, Mike Bond is out there doing the Lord's work this week. He put the failure of the early weigh-in system in cold, hard numbers. I'm sold. The old way was empirically more successful. But something tells me that the UFC won't course, won't course correct. I'm picturing in my mind's brain a dismissive tweet from a bald man who has never had to cut weight. So if presenting the numbers won't work, what would it actually take for the system to change? How many main eventers have to be catch weights? How many Nermi-style hospitalizations? Or is our best hope that Bellator will address it first and shame the UFC into action? Okay, uh, I was also interested to read this Mike Bond report about just how the early weigh-ins have gone. But it is difficult to look at that and say exactly what is going on there. Yeah, I mean... Mike Bone, as I like to call him, uh, bad to the bone, uh, does a great job with these, with, with numbers in general in MMA. He's the MMA junkie statistics analysis guy. Uh, and the number that jumps out to me the most in this, uh, weigh-in story, he basically takes two years, right? Two years of the way the weigh-ins used to be compared with now the two years of moving the weigh-ins up to the AM hours and doing an early weigh-in. Uh, and basically the number that jumps out is roughly double the number of weigh in of weight snafus of miss people who missed weight right and uh the also the the numbers it's interesting of like the he also tallies how many of the people who missed weight actually went on to fight like they missed weight so badly and uh and how many of them and you know how they did in those fights like we were talking recently about how like this year i believe up until recently there people who missed weight were undefeated weren't they it was like 5-0 and oh or something. Yeah, up until Darren Till's. Well, Darren Till won, so are they still undefeated? I don't know if it was Darren Till or somebody. I, I felt like the streak got snapped, but I can't exactly remember right now. Um, but, yeah, he, he tallied how of the 27 who actually fought before in the old weigh-in system uh, those two years, uh, the record was 12-15. and 15, And now uh, the 62 fighters missed weight in the most recent two years. Uh, 15 didn't enter the cage, 47 did, and the record was 27 and 20. So a, a little bit of a, a noteworthy thing there. But I still, it doesn't necessarily, I think, tell us exactly why there's a difference, exactly why it seems like there's more weight misses. Cause, right. Some of those numbers might even out if you took a, a, you know, a longer look, a bigger picture look. We just don't have the luxury of doing that at this point. That's why, to me, the number that stood out is twice as many people missing weight. Because that's the one that just seems like there's no way that, that, Probably statistically, that would you know uh, come back to the to the herd. But is that because they think the fighters hear early weigh-ins and think, all right, I'll have more time to rehydrate, therefore I can attempt a uh, more dramatic cut? Yeah, I don't know, man. See, and it's it's weird, and like uh, maybe. And I was I've I've been thinking about this myself, and like I was one of the things that I was able to come up with is like maybe just like because you would think. 
that if you just started your your weight cut a little bit earlier, you would have no trouble making the weight in the morning rather than making it in that afternoon. But maybe there is something about, uh, you know, not having as much time that day. Like you, you go to sleep, you wake up, and the weigh-in is, you know, a few hours away from the time that you wake up. For whatever reason, maybe you just don't have the time to do as much preparation that day. Other than that, like, I honestly can't think of, of why it would be that big of a difference. Yeah, I mean, I can understand how you don't want to go through the whole misery the night before. You'd want to try to save the the misery for as close to the weigh-in portion as you can. But... I don't. It also seems like maybe what we're really highlighting here is the crash course nature of weight cutting, and that yeah. you you were allowed to get away with a little bit more of that when you had until 4 p.m. or whatever. But now you don't have that luxury, and so you see a lot of people screwing it up. Yeah. But well, I, I mean, if that's the case, if that's what we're learning here from these numbers, then that tells us something that needs to change about the way people cut weight. I think. Yeah, and you know, another thing that could be going on is that there's just a, a changing attitude about the nature of of weight cuts these days. Like, uh, I remember when I wrote my story for Bleacher Report about cheating in MMA, I talked to Eric Nixek from Extreme Couture, uh, and he has was the guy, one of the guys around handling the weight cuts of both Uriah Hall and. Uh, uh, the guy who just fought for the interim title, uh, from Detroit, Kevin Lee, Kevin Lee, right. Kevin Lee missed weight for his interim title fight. Remember? Had the uh, huge staff infection on his chest too. Yeah. Uh, and Eric Nixick was telling me like they had, you know, pretty recently had that experience where Uriah Hall basically collapsed from his weight cut. Had like a seizure, right? Yes. A mini seizure. Yeah, and like it. got pulled out of his fight. And it, like Eric said, it was super scary. It's one of the scariest things that he's ever witnessed in, in MMA. So like fast forward to the Kevin Lee weight cut. You have a bunch of guys in the room who have experienced the Uriah Hall weight cut. And so when Kevin Lee gets, uh, you know, down to the end of his weight cut, and he's like, I, I'm done. I can't make the extra two pounds. It's not like they were busting his ass to get back in the sauna to lose that extra weight. They were like well, this is a title fight, so we all recommend that you try to make weight, but if you feel like you're done, you're done. Yeah. So, like, there's there's a changing attitude about weight cuts, and, and, like, it sounds healthier in some ways to me. So you get this, you know, this kind of glaring number that twice as many people have missed weight since moving to the early weigh-ins, but, you know, it might not be telling the whole story if we didn't say maybe some of that is is because of changing attitudes and attitudes that may be changing for the better, frankly. Right. And I mean, I think that's what we've said before and that it's ultimately going to take is a culture change among fighters and trainers and in their camps. Like they're going to have to realize sometimes that the weight cuts are not giving you results that make it worth what you're sacrificing, that you can just fight at a higher weight or that you can walk around closer to the weight that you want to fight at. That you need to do something other than counting on your consistent ability to drop 30 pounds in like a couple days. Like when you plan on that as your whole strategy, there's so many ways for it to go wrong from just not making it to making it and performing poorly to straight up hospitalizing yourself. Next question this week comes to us from James Hawkins who writes, so just like that time my high school girlfriend broke up with me only to come crawling back three weeks later. Yair El Pantera Rodriguez is back in the UFC and fighting Mad Mags. What lesson should other UFC fighters take from this? Should they be fearful of being cut if they don't accept matchups or confident that the UFC is a little more forgiving than they once were? Ben, you know who we got to give the high five on this one to? The big homie Scott Coker. The big homie Scott Coker. He called it. Who frankly called this from the jump, from the <laughs> right. word go. He knows this business. 
That's when you know Scott Coker, he's been around the block a few times because as soon as somebody came to him and said, hey, are you interested in signing Yair Rodriguez now that he's been fired from the UFC? He said, yeah, sure, I'd be interested in talking to him if he's really fired. Uh, lo and behold, turns out maybe he wasn't. Yeah, so what do we make of this situation? Yair Rodriguez, uh, obviously a young guy with a lot of potential, originally cut by the UFC reportedly for turning down a couple of fights that the company offered him. Now, fast forward a couple of weeks, he's back in the fold and and apparently accepting the fight that seemed to be the real big sticking point between him and the UFC. Uh, but I again, mean, we don't, I, I guess I don't know the, like the terms of the agreement, like if they, if they ponied up and gave Yair Rodriguez more money or if he just came back to the table and realized life would be better in the UFC regardless. But like on the surface, it seems like, to me at least, kind of a... Uh, like, yeah, yeah, Rodriguez showed his hand here, right? Like, in the future, the UFC knows what's up. Well, if you recall what his argument was, first he was like, hey, I didn't turn down these other fights. I offered to step in against Josh Emmett. I offered to fight Ricardo Lamas. Uh, then they wanted me to fight Magomed Sharapov in L.A. I said, I'll do it in L.A. for more money, or I'll do it in Russia uh, for the same money, or I'll take anybody in the top ten, no questions asked. And... You know, which seemed like when he's laying out that thing where he said, like, I will do all, like, one of these options. And the UFC was like, no, only this option. Fuck you. You're fired. And hmm. he, right. And then he said he had a meeting with Sean Shelby. They had a lunch uh, and were, hashed out this miscommunication. And now he's fighting Magomed Sharapov, not at the LA, at, not at the LA event, but at, like, the next pay-per-view event. Okay. Uh, yeah. And again, we don't know if that was for more money or, or, or what happened there or whatnot. But... To me, it just smacks of impulsiveness from Dana White. We've made this comment before. The comparisons you can draw between UFC President Dana White and United States President Donald Trump are piling up. And this one is, seems like that same thing where like kind of impulsively he says, uh, you know, this guy's fired and then somebody else has to go and do the cleanup work. And the thing that makes me wonder is it's, I'm always surprised when how many MMA fans will jump to the – the side of the multimillionaire owner in these kinds of talent labor disputes. Yeah, especially now. Right. It's 2018, man. We we if you have been around this sport for a while, uh you have you should have the book on how the this company and this man operates, right? Right, but you can only have so many uh fallouts with fighters and other companies and advertisers and social media directors before we start to notice the common denominator, yeah. should we say, in all of these situations. If every if everybody you meet is an asshole, maybe you're the asshole. But so when Yair Rodriguez lays it out and he's like, hey, uh, we we sounded like we made all these reasonable points and the UFC was like, fuck you, you're fired. That has what we call the ring of truth at this point, <laughs> yes. right? Because it seems believable. Right, but they, all these people jump to like adopt Dana White's viewpoint of, yeah, that's right, you should fire that guy. You can't use a guy like that. A guy won't do exactly what you say and will try to negotiate his fights uh, even while he's still under contract. Uh, fire that guy. You don't need him. And then the UFC men's fences with him, gets him to do the fight, and he's back in there. What do those people tell themselves? Because... Like as people, they say, ha ha, another big win for Dana. Yeah. And like, by extension, myself. Yes, that's apparently what they do. Because 
the point a lot of us made was that, no, you do want a guy like Yair Rodriguez if you're the UFC. There's a lot of reasons why you want a guy like Yair Rodriguez, uh, mainly to keep him away from the competition, because a lot of people would like to have this guy. And then, you know, the, see that the UFC did realize, yeah, no, there is a place in the UFC for Yair Rodriguez right now. Uh, I mean, that seemed obvious all along, and so it's just kind of galling to me, like, how many people... What what would Dana White have to say about some of these fighters before these same people would be like, now hold up, I think maybe I disagree on this one. Yeah, well, I mean, if you're if you've still got the guys back in 2018, I don't know that there's any hope. Next question this week comes to us from David Dean. He writes, so Marlon Marais knocked out Jimmy Rivera in the main event of UFC Utica in like 30 seconds. Marais is now three and zero since losing his UFC debut to Rafael Asuncao. Before that, he won like 500 fights in a row. He's paraphrasing. Uh, as WSOF champ. He seems like a capital G guy who might be going places, but we're all sitting around waiting for Tilly Dills and Cody Gars to do the damn thing over again in, wait for it, fucking August. What's really going on, you guys? Yeah, we are in a bit of a holding pattern, and just to see a rematch of the last title fight. Uh, I don't think, though, you know, I agree with the characterization of Marlon Moraes as a capital G guy. We kind of Hell expected yeah. him to be coming in from uh, WSOF, uh, hit some speed bumps at first. But you go out there, especially against a guy like Jimmy Rivera, who is a tough dude and, uh, you know, considered a rising contender in that division. You put him away inside of 30 seconds. Now we're paying attention. Yeah, and it's weird how often this happens that you have a, high, a highly anticipated free agent signing, somebody who's had a lot of success outside the UFC, that they come in and have a stumble or two right off the bat. And then, you know, once they kind of get their sea legs under them inside the octagon, then we see their true potential. And it seems like that's what's happening with Marlon Morais right now. Uh, this head kick knockout of Jimmy Rivera, super impressive. Looked like he caught him basically with like uh, the ankle almost, like the sort of like side of the foot and ankle area right in the temple, drops Jimmy Rivera uh, and gets this big highlight win, which is maybe exactly what he needed at this point to sort of uh, vault him up to top competitor status, like to potentially be next in line uh, for the winner of, of TJ Dillashaw versus Cody Garbrandt, which I believe is UFC 227 uh, they will fight at, uh, and then jumps on the mic and demands, or doesn't demand, but says he wants to fight for the UFC title, uh, albeit in a voice that kind of makes him sound like a cartoon mouse. Uh but like laying out a pretty uh, unimpeachable resume at this point, if you ask me. Here's the question that I come back to, and it's one we've discussed before. But an event like this, the UFC Fight Night in Utica, New York. Now, astute listeners of this podcast will note that there was a UFC event on Friday night, and it does not get its own round in any sense on this week's Comet Event podcast. Yeah. And a lot of people watching this thing, this was one of those fight nights where they felt like, oh, maybe I could miss this one. Or once you sit down and start watching it, you know, it's, if it turns into a little bit of a slog, you right. might tune out and drift away. Right. You have to sit up for the whole thing if you want, or DVR it and come back later if you want to catch Marlon Moraes doing his thing against Jimmy Rivera. Now, this is a fight the UFC definitely wants you to see and be aware of because this is something you're going to want to build on later. These are important people, important contenders in this division. If you're going to get people interested in what's next in this division and who might fight for the title next, you need them to see this fight and to you know kind of absorb that knowledge and care about it. But does that happen if you try to take these guys who are you know would be good? 
uh, undercard pay-per-view guys. Like this fight, you put it on the undercard of something like UFC 225 or something, and you know it becomes one more awesome thing that we're not buying specifically for that, but we are watching because it's a big event, and we so we see this one as well. But instead, if you use it as a headliner for you know the many fight night content filler kind of event that you have. Do you run the risk of having these stuff that you're going to want to have as building blocks for your future that people just don't see because they feel like you have too many events and so they skip this one? Yeah, and I think that that only becomes a bigger and bigger issue as we move forward, right? Like With 42 events next yeah, year? Yeah, now, now that we know what the future of the UFC broadcast deal is moving over to ESPN, it doesn't seem like you're going to remedy that in any way unless like you get heavy rotation uh, as part of like the Sports Center top 10 plays or like highlights of... Uh, Marlon Marais knocking out Jimmy Rivera on SportsCenter a bunch of times throughout the week. And I don't even know what, what impact that has or will have on, on the audience or people that will take note, uh, you know, given that we are frankly just dealing with a different animal of television watching these days. Uh, clearly like, you know, your broadcast sit down 60 minute, uh, sports, uh, news shows just aren't getting as much traction as they used to. So like, yeah, man, I think that like you have a, a pretty big problem on your hands here. Uh, and especially like, where you get an event like Fight Night 131, which ends with five straight stoppages in a row, and it still feels like a goddamn, uh, death march. You, you get to, you're after midnight, uh, on the six fight main card, uh, and, and, you're, I guess you're just praying that something happens like Marlon Rice knocks out Jimmy Rivera in 33 seconds so you can go to sleep. Yes. And that's exactly is, what I was doing. This is another one of those like, uh, you know, kind of s low wattage in terms of star power events that at the end of it, the UFC doesn't even award a fight of the night bonus, uh, which tells you something about how all this stuff went down. Even though like you, you, you know, if once you start getting into the UFC roster, as we have talked about again and again, they have just an embarrassment of riches in terms of like the talent that they possess at this point. And so the question, the trick becomes, you know, turning some of those people into, into appointment viewing for your audience. And I think that you raise a good question, uh, that the company itself is going to have to answer, uh, unless the business model switches so far in the other direction that it becomes a question of merely, uh, churning out content for various platforms, yeah. right? Which is the danger of, I think, where we're headed. Yes. Speaking of those people that put their best foot forward at UFC 131, this question is from Nick Jolly, and he writes, Gregor Gillespie's great win at UFC Utica got me thinking about the way UFC is marketing its fighters. The outfitting policy until 2021 now means most outfits, give or take a few, look the same. A guy or gal wearing dark against an opponent in light. Virtually no advertising or character anymore with most designs. Dana's talked about new fighter opportunities with the ESPN deal, though nothing about more pay. In terms of designs, I keep thinking of that episode of The Simpsons, where Homer turns up to work wearing a pink shirt. Afterward, Mr. Burns uh, comments to him, or commits, commits him. to him, because he stands out differently. A guy like Gillespie, who does stand out in a good way, would be a great dude to market and produce to a wider audience, showing the diverse characters in the sport, which keeps you guys in a job and me interested in the sport. Alternatively, does uh, the UFC want most fighters to look and sound the same? Thoughts? Uh, I mean, we've talked about this again and again, and we've talked about it with a guy like Gregor Gillespie, who goes out uh, and gets a huge win this past weekend against Vince from Hell Pichel, uh, and frankly seems like a dude who is now up and coming in the lightweight division. Undefeated, keeps finishing people. And there's nothing not to like about Gregor Gillespie at this point. Has the fisherman gimmick. Did you see his fishing boat? 
No, but I saw that he added like a fishing reel pantomime to his best fisherman in <laughs> MMA uh, gimmick at this fight, which I couldn't be more in favor of. And you know what? I'm going to say even absent the best fisherman in MMA gimmick, like Gregor Gillespie to me is a joy to watch fight yeah. because of how fucking relentless this guy is, how he's only got one speed and it is fucking balls to the wall. And basically, and Vince Pichel is a tough dude. Gillespie just kind of goes out there and wears him out with sheer determination. And I believe he said persistence was his word for it. Uh, just trying takedown after takedown after takedown into uh, submission after submission after submission and ultimately gets the arm triangle choke about four minutes into the second round. You come away from this, at least I come away from this fight feeling like uh, I would very much like to see Gregor Gillespie fight the, the upper echelon of the division. And in fact, the one guy out there that seems like uh, funner than hell to watch Gregor Gillespie fight would be a dude like Habib Nurmagomedov because they both have kind of the same style. They have what could end up being super complimentary styles so yeah, Gregor Gillespie, uh, a lot of potential, and again, just a question of of like how do you tap into that? Now, I'm going to show you this picture. This is a picture of Gregor Gillespie and John Anik post fight uh, posing next to Gregor Gillespie's boat, which seems to be pulled up outside the double tree. Hold up, Gregor Gillespie like towed his boat up Hell to Utica. Yeah, you think he's not going to do any fishing while he's up Although, there? Well, he did say he was going fishing the next day. Come on, man. Now. Well, this tells me where Gregor Gillespie's true interests are, right? What you see here is his red boat up on the trailer, uh, a an illustration, really, of a fish uh, in battle. And it says on the side, Fishing with the Gift, Gregor Gillespie. And he's got his sponsors on there. He's got his Twitter handle on there. This is a guy who clearly knows a little something about self-promotion. Yeah. Every time he's on the mic afterwards, he'll, he'll tell you about his fisherman thing. You watch any of his videos. I follow him on Instagram and like he, when he's video, like doing a video of him out fishing, he will say the phrase fishing with the gift and best fisherman in MMA at least two or three times per video. And you see like all this stuff and you're like, the, you know, Nick Jolly mentions, hey, the ESPN deal is supposed to bring them new opportunities. So was the sale to a giant talent agency. So you're wondering, if you can't do something with this guy, where he has all the talent, he has uh, a unique thing about himself, he's not afraid to get out there and promote himself, What what's missing there? What are you waiting for? Well, now that I've seen the boat, I can tell you with all confidence that the only thing missing from the Gregor Gillespie fishing show is a goddamn camera. He's got everything else. He's ready to go. Just send somebody out there with a camera and you've got a Gregor Gillespie fishing show that you could probably sell to the Outdoors Network if that is still a thing. Yeah. And or just put it on the fightpass.com. There you go. If that's what you want to do. Uh, yeah, Gregor Gillespie, an up-and-coming guy, seems seemingly uh, set for big stuff in the lightweight division, so he'll be an interesting guy to keep but an eye on. This, but the essential question of is, does the UFC want the guys to look and sound the same? I mean, you can't think of any reason why they would, except that, like you talked about before, if the UFC is starting to see itself as, we're a content company, that's right. what we do, is we churn out content, then maybe you either you don't care enough about creating like individual attractions, or you see that there can be a double-edged sword to it. That if you create somebody into too big a star, then the next thing you know, they want more money. And if they don't get it, they take the star power that you've helped them build to somebody else. I mean, I don't know exactly how much the UFC is calculating that in there, but it does seem like there are a lot of missed opportunities piling up here. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe that was a concern a long time ago, right? And clearly the UFC has always consciously made the decision 
to market the the brand over any individual fighters, which from a certain point of view makes sense, right? Because you've got the the one constant in Dana White and the those three letters as uh as the Fertitta brothers used to say on the octagon. So you've got all of this sort of like constant branding that will always be there uh while fighters come and go. But at this point, man, like I said before, it's 2018. Like, what are you worried about, essentially? Like, why would you not try to make Gregor Gillespie as big a star as you can? Because, frankly, there's nowhere else for him to go. I mean, you've got a guy like Conor McGregor, right, who's one of the biggest sporting stars in the world today, and he's still sort of trapped in this marriage with the UFC because there's nowhere else for him to go. Like, what else does he do? Does Conor McGregor go to Bellator? Like... What have McGregor promotions? Well, I was going to say the only real option for him would be to like stay home and, and produce McGregor promotions events over there in, in, in Ireland, which he's basically the only MMA fighter that in the, in the world that would have a prayer of getting away with that. Right. So like, I don't understand why, what you would be worried about in terms of like creating stars and like, nobody's going to get bigger than the brand except for one out of every 500 fighters to come down the pike every three years. And you're going to make a lot of money that way too, if you're the UFC. That's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, except next, you know how to do it. Go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter, which comes out almost every Friday. Didn't come out last Friday because Ben was on assignment. Uh, but when it does come out, most of the time, it's short, it's informative. We'd love to tell you it's funny. It catches you up on the news and notes of all the stuff that we miss week in and week out when we're not recording the podcast. Uh, and if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, I want you to know that I am prepared to get deep in terms of finding out your experience of going to Cheyenne to watch bare knuckle boxing over the weekend. How deep? I want the whole story, man. I want to know everything about it. And the first thing I want is for you to just lay out the scene. Okay. Cheyenne, Wyoming. Wild ass Saturday night watching bare knuckle boxing. Take it away. There we are in the Cheyenne Ice and Events Center. Which sounds legit. In the Cheyenne, in, in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Uh, about 2,000 people are there. It's basically a hockey rink with no ice in it at the moment. So you felt right at home. Yeah, I knew my way around. Uh, I, I see the sign that says no skates beyond this point, and I know what's going on. And let's just say there's always like a there's a fun thing as a media member to go and cover like a non-UFC event or a non like a, a non-regular MMA promoter event. Right. It's a different experience. Right. A lot of times, too... It's fun because it seems like you can do anything. Like nobody – there's not a, a clear prescribed set of rules. But there's a, there's a downside to that too. Like the good part is I'm like, hey, can I just like walk up to ringside and start taking pictures uh, and even video? Yeah, turns out I can. Uh, also, when I ask is there going to be a press conference afterwards, they look at me as if they had, they had not considered even that idea until the moment the words came out of my mouth. Uh, so, you know, up and down kind of stuff like that. But – I was really interested to see not only how this thing would play out, but what the crowd reaction would be. And it strikes me as like we're in a moment right now when it comes to combat sports where you see a lot of people 
I don't want to call it gimmicks, but everybody's kind of focusing on some new twist that they can put on it, right? Like, whether it's a different kind of surface that the fights are going to take place in, a different kind of format, it's as if everybody has kind of figured out, like, okay, there are only so many people, only so many fighters that people care about, and most of them are unavailable or you know, beyond your reach financially to where, like, you're, it's going to destroy your profit margin and go at, after them. So in order to capture people's attention, you can't just be like, hey, we are also an MMA promotion in the sea of MMA promotions, or we are also, like, putting on boxing fights. You have to come up with some kind of little twist on it. And so this is the bare-knuckle boxing twist is just like, hey, remember when people used to do this? We're basically going to do it now. And one of the things, and I'll have a longer story coming out on it, I was curious to see, like, if you go and you watch some of those old bare-knuckle boxing fights, or some of the ones like the underground bare-knuckle boxing fights that have been going on, like this guy Bobby Gunn, uh, who has the, I think now, I guess he's 74-0 and 0, uh, in bare-knuckle boxing, which is a real great Hicks and Gracie type record there. But you go and you watch some of these videos of him on YouTube, and they're, they're kind of what you're thinking of when it's bare-knuckle boxing. Like, there's no rounds, or the round doesn't end until somebody hits the ground, however long that takes. It's a bunch of people standing around in a basement or, like, a, a warehouse somewhere or, you know, like a boat salvage yard, like Kimbo Slice style. And we're just two guys throwing while everybody stands around and yells. Like, it's they're the background characters in Street Fighter 2. And... This is not that. Like, you can't do that on pay-per-view because you don't know how long the fights are going to go. It will get boring. So instead, they do these two-minute rounds. They have a referee. Big Dan Mirigliata was there working as the referee. They have judges. It's kind of forcing the bare-knuckle fighting thing into the trappings of, like, normal, regular combat sports. And I was curious, like, would it lose whatever gritty, raw appeal you get when you say to somebody, bare-knuckle boxing, if you squeeze it into this format, do you lose some of that? And Yes and no, I guess was the answer. But, it, like, there is still something. And, you know, guys like us, we've seen a lot of fights. Yeah. A lot of professional fighting. And still, when you see people go out there with bare knuckles and you hear that bone-on-bone, skin-on-skin of them landing, there is something where you're like, okay, this feels different. This feels something, like, a, a little more exciting or uncomfortable at times. Like, Joey Beltran's fight where it got super bloody and you can see him at, at points like where he comes over and he puts his hands on the ropes between rounds. And you're looking at his hands and his, his fingers and his knuckles are just coated in blood. Some of it his, uh, some of it the other guys. And for some reason that makes more of an impact than seeing a bunch of blood on a guy's glove. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, like that, that was interesting. I wonder though, like, I think people tuned into this. I think, you know, I don't know how many people bought the pay-per-view, but. I think there's a lot of novelty value with something like that. The question is, like, how far do you get on novelty value? Yeah, I guess I have a couple of questions. And I didn't really watch this event. I watched the, uh, uh, the like, highlight videos that showed up on social media. Uh, oddly enough, and I was a little bit surprised at myself by this, I thought it was pretty gross. Now, I mean, I, I probably saw, like, the, the worst slash best of it if you're only taking in the highlight videos. But it kind of leads me into my first question for you. And that is that, like, one of my things has always been, if you come to mixed martial arts primarily or exclusively to see blood and guts, I feel like you will be disappointed. That, like, sometimes you get a bloody fight, sometimes you get a highlight reel knockout, but a lot of times you get, for lack of a, of a better example or a more recent example, Gregor Gillespie versus Vince Pichel, Right. Like, there's not a lot of blood in that fight, not even a lot of real, like, stand-up fight fighting. It's mostly on the ground, and one guy gets submitted. 
is how bloody was bare knuckle boxing? Do you feel like it like that it will appeal to people who want that, who want blood and guts, or was it like, or was there an aspect of it that was kind of like boring and 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 uh, like non technical? You know, it wasn't like a bunch of unskilled tough man uh, contest type fights. There was definitely a lot of skill there. Uh, it wasn't exactly like the highest level of combat sports, but I, I was thinking, you know, maybe it would be boring because if people are so concerned about breaking their hands and you know you can't just throw punches and huge combinations as willy-nilly as you might with boxing gloves on, that maybe there would be less action and that that would be uninteresting for people. That didn't really happen. Uh, the damage, you know, there, I think there was a lot, there was maybe more cosmetic damage. Like you saw cuts and stuff like that. Um, you saw some people look like maybe they had injured their hands, but not in a huge number. Uh, so I don't know. It did make me wonder about the relative safety of it. And I'll touch on this more in my, my later article about it. But like, if, the argument that we made before about MMA, right, was that the smaller gloves, less damage than boxing, uh, and the bare knuckles, in some way, I mean, you know, maybe more cosmetic damage, but you might see less actual damage from punches right. in that way. And if you can't spar that way, and even the bare knuckle fighters will say that you can't spar bare knuckle the way you can spar boxing, maybe you do end up with less damage in the end. I mean, is it like, like if you took helmets out of football, people will stop using their heads as weapons and you'll probably see fewer concussions. Like it made me wonder like, does, is there an argument there for safety? And yet no one is really trying to make that argument because they know what they're trying to sell you when they say bare knuckle boxing. Yeah. Uh, well in that vein, I guess my other question is, you know, people, there's a reason why boxers wear gloves. There's a reason why MMA fighters wear gloves. It's kind of counterintuitive. It's not necessarily the reason that some people think it is, but it's like it's basically to protect your hands and to protect the skin of the face because, you know, that didn't that didn't happen like in a vacuum. That didn't happen by accident. It happened because back in the old days when there was bare knuckle boxing, everybody got hurt and they couldn't do bare knuckle boxing. So they were like, uh, we'll put gloves on and then no, people won't break their hands as frequently. Like is is can bare knuckle boxing be a, a going concern or like you questioned a minute ago, like, A, is it just novelty value that got people to go there the first time? Or B, like, is it just going to be, like, physically not tenable for the for the fighters? Yeah. Well, I was – one thing, the, the fighters were super into it, both before and after. Because I, I was trying to measure if there would be a difference after if people had actually done it, uh, if they had would change their minds about it. And every fighter I talked to afterwards was like, I hope they'll have me back uh, because I enjoyed that. And – also, though, the thing with the gloves, one of the best parts for me in doing the story has been I did a ton of reading about the bare knuckle days. And for tips for the well-rounded fight fan, if people feel like they would like some interesting reading about the history of fight sports, uh, one book I really recommend that was really great is by uh, a guy named Elliot J. Gorn, and it's called The Manly Art, uh, Bare Knuckle Prize Fighting in America. And it's just kind of like a history of how the sport developed. He doesn't talk too much about you know, its roots in England and like the London prize ring, but focuses mainly on America and it's just exhaustively researched and really well done. Uh, one of the things I came away thinking in reading about it though is that there is nothing new in combat sports right. ever. We have done all this shit before to like a kind of amazing degree. You remember 
Chad, when the, the Mayweather-McGregor fight, how they decided to have it for the money belt? Yes. And it was just like, it even said the money belt on the belt that they were fighting for. And at the time, it seemed like, wow, okay. So we're really not being at all subtle by trying to hype this bout based on, like, here's all the money that's at stake. The the first heavyweight championship fight to be contested with gloves uh, between uh, when, when John L. Sullivan lost his title to, to, to your guy, Gentleman Jim... The tickets to that fight had drawings of money bags on them to remind everybody, hey, there's a ton of money at stake. And it was a winner-take-all purse, which uh, John L. Sullivan had insisted on. And there's just tons of stuff throughout the entire thing. And John L. Sullivan deciding at one point he could make an easier uh, career for himself as an actor, get paid better that way. And it was an easier job the same way. And the, the plays he was in required him to – there would always be a fight scene in the plays. Like, it's just exactly like – how we see the arc of people's fight careers develop now. And the gloves came about like as a training tool, but they were also used as like a thing where it was like, once they started putting on these gloved exhibitions, people didn't see fighting necessarily as this thing that all like was an underground thing for only ruffians and thugs. It was like, okay, the gloves on now you can start having it at Madison square garden. You can start having it in athletic clubs and it kind of helps the sport grow. And so now we're kind of coming back to this because we're looking for something that feels like more raw, more extreme, uh, something different. I don't know. Like as far as like, if that can be something that people will get into a lot, it feels like the first time you see it when they, their whole sales pitch is basically, you haven't seen this since 1889. It's tough to do that. If you have four or five events a year, I think that can't be your whole appeal then. All right, last question. There were a lot of MMA uh, names on this card. Rico Rodriguez, Joey Beltran, as you talked about. Beck Rawlings got a win. Eric Prindle got knocked out. Johnny Bedford was also on the card. And then you had Bobby Gunn, the uh, uh, like the, the renowned bare-knuckle fighter. Who was this? Was there a star here? Did you come out of this thing being like, that person is a bare-knuckle boxing star? Uh, it's In a way, it's tough to say because... I'll say, with the exception maybe of Eric Prindle getting knocked out by the boxing hillbilly, Sam Shoemaker, who is a awesome character, by the way, showed up at the press conference and said that he was only there to drink beer and fight, and he couldn't drink beer until after the fight, so let's hurry up and get the fight over with. That sounds like a guy who gets it. Yeah. Um, other than that, you know, that seeing him knock out Eric Prindle with one punch was a little bit surprising. Elsewhere on the card, it felt like everybody who was supposed to win won. And maybe that was one of – it also did not feel like that was on accident. Like a lot of these matchups, you could look at the two people and be like, okay, I see what's supposed to happen here. And it happens. But like it also delivers a lot of action to the the crowd because if there's a bunch of super evenly matched up fights, maybe they won't be all that interesting. Uh, as far as like who came out of it looking really awesome, um, Joey Beltran's fight, that was that definitely the bloodiest one. And the crowd got more into that one than they did any other fight. Um, but also, uh, Maurice Jackson, kickboxer. I mean, he seemed like he got kind of a, a favorable matchup, let's say. But if they're really doing this heavyweight tournament thing, as soon as he came out there and, uh, he, he put Dale Soapy away in, I believe, 70 seconds. And, uh, as we're talking about it on the, the Skype uh, group with MMA Junkie, everybody's like, okay, I think I have a favorite to win this heavyweight tournament. It's the enormous kickboxer dude who looks like he will beat the shit out of absolutely everybody he can see. Uh, so yeah, like I'll be interested to see if they're able to keep that going because like a tournament is always a good, especially you say heavyweight tournament, you know how combat sports fans are. Like we're already halfway interested. Did you fly to Cheyenne? 
I flew to Denver, rented a car, drove to Cheyenne. How far of a drive from Denver to Cheyenne is it? About an hour and a half. Okay, that's not bad. Through the open prairie. Yeah. So you had some time to think. Yes, a lot of time with my thoughts. Some time to reflect. Yeah. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, we're going to talk about the main event to UFC 225 and round three. But round two, we owe it to ourselves to take a look at what's going on underneath the main event because there's kind of a lot happening here. A grab bag, if you will. A real fucking grab bag. <laughs> An old-fashioned goddamn grab bag. First of all, co-main event, you got Rafael Dos Anjos versus Colby Covington. Chaos. Thank you. Isn't that what he's calling himself now? Chaos Covington, Lord of Chaos? Oh, is that what he's doing? I think so. I'm going to date myself now as as a guy who doesn't know that much about pop culture, but is Lord of Chaos an Avengers reference? Or like a metal band? I don't know. I honestly don't know. Anyway, they're fighting for the interim UFC welterweight championship, just so you can put a little more gold on the poster. Then you got Holly Holm and Megan Anderson. You got, uh, and actually, that one's worth noting because that's an actual women's featherweight bout, a non-title women's featherweight bout. And we've been waiting a while to see Megan Anderson. That's right. In the UFC. Um, so yeah, that one checks a couple boxes for you. Then you got Andre Orlovsky versus your dude Tai Tuivasa, Mr. Shuey. That's right. And I, I think his thing has to be he, he does a Shuey every time he wins now, right? Yeah. Oh, if, I'm telling you, if he goes out there and he knocks out Andre Orlovsky and then does not drink a beer out of a shoe for our viewing pleasure right there in full public view, I'm going to demand my money back. Uh, then, the fight I know you're really looking forward to, CM Punk versus Mike Jackson. Right. That's and the, the curtain jerker on, on the pay-per-view. And not only that, like I think we should throw Alistair Overeem versus Curtis Blades in this thing, too, because you got Overeem, who started his career at UFC 141 as a main event star beating up Brock Lesnar on his way in the door. Starting his UFC career there, yeah. That's what I said. Uh, and, yeah, you're and right. You and fast now... Fast forward 12 fights, and he ain't even on the pay-per-view. He's he's the prelim main event against the up-and-coming Curtis Blades. Okay, let's talk about that for a minute, because I know a lot of people seized on that, and Alistair Overeem, as you mentioned before, did like a real classic Alistair Overeem-style response to it. Well, you say people uh, seized on it, like, he teed us up for that. Yes. Like, if Alistair Overeem hadn't sent those tweets, I don't think people would have, like, seized on uh, it no, they would. People are going to notice that. When when CM Punk gets put on the pay-per-view and Alistair mm -hmm. Overeem doesn't, people are going to notice. As an aside, Dana White did not help him out. No, Like, Dana didn't. White, like, he came straight to the bone with Alistair Overeem, where he's basically like, when Alistair Overeem sells as many pay-per-views as CM Punk, we can argue. Yes. Like, yeah. <laughs> Burn. <laughs> now, I think there are a couple different ways you can go with this argument here, but I don't hate it that Alistair Overeem versus Curtis Blades is the final fight on the Fox Sports 1 prelims. Like, yeah. I, I think that maybe we've gotten away from this a little bit, maybe just because, like, there's not enough talent to spread around for a lot of these pay-per-views, but with this one, it's good to have a, a pretty kick-ass fight on the free portion of the fight card, no, especially if you're trying to get somebody to sit through the prelims, get them to actually sit and watch that stuff, and then so you can make your pitched, your last-minute sales pitch for them to buy the actual pay-per-view. 
that seems like a pretty good fit for that. No, I agree. Like, yeah. And well, you're going to get one of two things out of Alistair Overeem versus Curtis Blades, right? Like either Alistair Overeem is going to badly knock out Curtis Blades in the first round, or maybe junior college national wrestling champion Curtis Blades does his Curtis Blades thing uh, and defeats Andre Arlovsky or uh, defeats Alistair Overeem. I'm sorry by uh wrestle heavy unanimous decision. And like, it, it, it bears mention that Curtis Blades, he's undefeated uh, in the UFC. Well, he lost to uh, Francis, Ngannou. Francis Ngannou in his debut, but is undefeated since then. He would be riding a five-fight win streak if not uh, for having his win over Adam Milstead turn into a no contest because he tested positive for marijuana. So no, like, we don't even recognize that. We pretend that's a win. Right. So you so with uh, Stipe Miocic and Daniel Cormier fighting for the title at UFC 26, this is a big fight for both these guys. Like if Curtis Blades wins this and essentially has a six-fight win streak. Uh, in the heavyweight division, he's on the short list of guys who might be next. And you'll recall he's coming off that decision win over Mark Hunt, where Mark Hunt seemed like he had had him teetering on the the border to the dark lands, yeah, and could not push him all the way over. So when you talk about maybe Alistair Overeem go out there and knock him out, that could be an interesting test of, of Curtis Blades' chin there. Uh, so, you, but you're right, like it is not only a potentially important bout for the heavyweight division. Um, a potentially exciting bout, the, the big dudes going out there throwing big leather. I don't hate that you put that one on free TV. I mean, I no. understand how people are going to look at it, especially when it, the one that does make it on pay-per-view is CM Punk. Uh, and the way Dana White phrases it and everything, it does seem like a slight to Alistair Overeem, uh, who's a veteran of the game. But as far as like from the fan experience... I don't see a lot to complain about there. No, I think it's a good fight to have as your uh, to tee up the pay-per-view, so to speak. I do think that there's a legitimate storyline there, though, since Alistair Overeem, when he came into the UFC at the tail end of 2011, like looked for all the world like a guy who was just going to take the heavyweight ranks by storm. Of course, immediately tested positive for uh, elevated levels of testosterone after that and has never really like become the guy that the, clearly the UFC thought he was going to be when they brought him in. Uh, what do you want to – what, if anything – Ben, do you want to see out of your guy Phil Brooks, the chick magnet punk, in his uh, in his second fight in the UFC? Is there anything to interest you there? Well, somebody asked me in my my Twitter mailbag last week, uh, you know, what would it prove if he goes out there and and wins this fight, especially against Mike Jackson, who you know people know him more as a journalist than a fighter. He's the guy who fought uh, the uh, what's why am I blanking on his name? The guy who CM Punk got beat up by in his first fight. Oh. Uh, yeah, I know what you mean. Mickey Gall. Mickey Gall. Can't, can't Which, in believe. retrospect, is kind of a bum matchup for CM Punk, right? <laughs> you mean then that's somebody who might actually be legit? Yeah, well, like, in your first fight out the gate, I understand that you're supposed to be this, like, pay-per-view anchor for the UFC because of your notoriety as a uh, professional wrestler, but, like, as we know now, like, Mickey Gall, he ain't no slouch. No, he's not, but, yeah, I... Anyway, I'm saying that for a, like a 30 this point, Phil Brooks, a 39 year old man with no competitive athletic experience. Like clearly he was a top level pro wrestler, but not necessarily a guy that when you watched him wrestle, you were like, the athleticism is obvious, right? <laughs> like that's not the kind of wrestler CM Punk was. So like to transition to MMA, as I've said from the beginning, as like a man who is my own age, almost kind of pie in the sky and like to give him Mickey Gall as a, as the welcoming committee. Obviously, didn't didn't do him any favors. Okay, well, so then you give him the guy who Mickey Gall beat to get to that CM Punk fight. The guy who the UFC at the time was not even prepared to say, like, he would get the CM Punk fight if he won. They're just like, oh, we'll see what happens if that happens because we're not expecting it to happen. Um, but now it feels like, okay, 
we're digging even deeper to the bottom of the barrel to find a hand-picked opponent who might not totally embarrass CM Punk. And the, the only thing I think you establish if he goes out there and wins is you can justify continuing to do this if you want to. Yeah. So is this a must-win for him if he loses to the truth, Mike Jackson? Are we done? Well, who do you mean by we? You mean the UFC? I mean all of us collectively, Ben. The I entire think, community. I think the community might be done, but I think the UFC has surprised us before with its willingness to just get more and more craven about playing to whatever it thinks will result in pay-per-view buys. The question is, will people keep paying to see CM Punk fights if he goes out there and gets beat up by the guy who they just went searching for as somebody he might stand a chance of beating? That's that's the part I don't know. Because I think at a certain point, like right now, people regard it as a joke, but like a joke that they want to enjoy laughing at. So you throw him on this pay-per-view in his hometown and I'm like, okay, sure. Yeah, let's let's see if CM Punk can do anything. Uh, I think if he keeps losing, at a certain point, it just gets kind of ridiculous to put a guy who can't win a fight in these UFC pay-per-views. All right, well, let's talk for a couple minutes about Colby Covington versus Rafael Dos Anjos, just to say that we did it. Uh, Colby Covington rolls in on a mid a five-fight win streak. Obviously, he has a thing that he is doing in terms of his media, in terms of uh, the kind of character that he is trying to create for himself. Uh, whether or not that has been successful is probably a matter up for debate, although he seems to be getting a little bit more attention because of it, and so maybe that's all that it takes. Uh, what are you expecting out of uh, this fight with, with Dos Anjos, who clearly, uh, since moving up to welterweight at the beginning of 2017, is 3-0. Three and, three and oh, uh, it's coming off this win over Robbie Lawler and obviously has been uh, pretty good since moving up from lightweight. Yeah, he has. And I think if, if Colby Covington were to beat him, it would definitely be his most significant win, his his toughest opponent. Uh, and yet there's a part of me that just wants Rafael Dos Anjos to go out there and steamroll him so that we can stop talking about Colby Covington and stop playing into this, you know, kind of just poorly done gimmick of his. Right. Well, and to me, that raises a lot of like talking points about what it means to quote unquote have a gimmick or what it means to be marketable or to try to play that game in fight sports, right? Because we always say it ain't that easy. Like you look at what Conor McGregor has done. He's been super successful. It leads people to say, well, the UFC needs 500 Conor McGregor's, but like it's hard to play that game. And so I'm inclined to say Colby Covington is an example of how it is hard to do that. And yet, even though we all kind of like turn our noses up at this sort of bad guy persona that he is trying to uh uh you know adopt and yet like it has gotten him somewhere right like i don't know if he would be in this fight without it and so like there's some utility there even if everyone thinks it's false and kind of hates it there is and that's the thing that i mean maybe that's what we hate about it the most is that it's working because you're right like especially when you look at how crowded the welterweight division is right now how many talented fighters there are and the problem that other fight, like you look at a guy like Kamaru Usman, like the difficulties he's having in trying to to move up the ranks and trying to like make each win lead to something like tangibly closer to a title shot. And then you look at Colby Covington, and you're like, okay, the I can see what the big difference there is. And I don't, I mean, I guess it being like reluctantly effective on us is one of the things that we hate about it. But also, 
I don't – like people are, are tuning in, right, because they want to see Colby Covington get beat up. That's kind of the idea. That's 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 why you're out there tweeting Avengers spoilers if you're Colby Covington because you, you realize it's easy to play to that kind of like persona, like the one where, okay, I can't get you to pay because you really like me and you want to share in my success, but I can get you to pay because you want somebody to punch me in my big fat mouth. If Rafael Dos Anjos goes out there and punches him in his big fat mouth – does that mean we're just like kind of glad to be rid of Colby Covington at least for the moment, or does Rafael Dos Anjos become the hero to the people? <laughs> interim welterweight champion Rafael Dos Anjos, people's champion. The people's interim champion. That's right. All right, you want to do? Are you fucking kidding me, Ben? And then we'll move on to round number three. Sure. Ben, name anything that you could do for sixty-seven hours straight. Uh. This podcast? As it turns out, no, we would kill each other. Uh, as it turns out this week, Ben, former UFC women's bantamweight champion Misha Tate was in labor with her first child for 67 hours. Are you fucking kidding me? That is too long. That's just too long to do anything, yeah. let alone force a giant baby out of your body. I mean, Jesus Christ, are you fucking kidding me? Kidding me? Mazel tov, by the way, to Misha Tate and new baby daughter, Amaya. Yay! Now, Chad, my are you fucking kidding me? I think you probably have seen at least the highlight of this one uh, on the prelims of the UFC Fight Night in Utica. He had a fight between Jared, Book, Jared Brooks and Jose Torres, in which Brooks picks up Torres at one point and looks like he's going to pull off a, a pretty slick-looking slam, except he slams himself, basically, and knocks himself out. Now, that's not the Are You Fucking Kidding Me. It's not? No. The Are You Fucking Kidding Me is his response to this on Twitter where he tweets at Jose Torres saying, your, uh, wrong form of your, by the way, mm -hmm. that's just a given, yeah. lucky that I knocked myself out and you didn't do shit to me that whole fight. Just seeing your after fight interview, well played, but if we run that shit back, I beat you nine times out of ten, and the only time you do is me KOing myself. Are you fucking kidding me? That is one of the all-time great entries in the I would have won if I didn't lose category of post-fight remarks. Especially, as I saw somebody point out on Twitter, it's interesting that he still gives himself a 10% chance of knocking himself out again if they were to fight again. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you kidding me? That's shades of Matt Lindland yeah. against Falonico Vitali. When he uh, went for, like, what, a German suplex and, like, landed right on his head and yeah, knocked himself that's out? That's pretty old school. And, UFC and, 43. And refused to believe it, I believe, afterwards. Matt Lillen, by the way, pretty dope Wikipedia picture if you want to go check that out. Uh, that's going to do it for round number two. As for right now, we're moving on to round number three. Well, Ben, the tangled web of the UFC middleweight championship rolls on this weekend. It has been a, a an illness-induced affair all over the place as we had George St. Pierre defeat Michael Bisping to win the 185-pound title and then immediately call off his comeback to MMA uh, owing to uh, some sickness. And then we had reports that then-interim middleweight champion Robert Whitaker uh, was in Serious condition with a staph infection in his stomach. Yeah, that's not what you want to hear. Sounds gross. In any case, uh, Robert Whitaker, a.k.a. Bobby Knuckles, is now both healthy and has been promoted to 
uh, regular old undisputed middleweight champion, and he will take on Yoel Romero in the main event of UFC 225 this weekend, which is a rematch of Robert Whitaker's last fight against Yoel Romero at UFC 213, which he won via unanimous decision. Yoel Romero got himself off the schneid by uh, defeating Luke Rockhold, and so finds himself back in this title fight. It kind of seems like the world is ready to accept Robert Knuckles as the UFC middleweight champion. So I guess my opening question to you is, what are the chances you think uh, that Yoel Romero derails the Bobby Knuckles hype train this weekend? Well, there's always that chance, especially with a guy like Yoel Romero. He can always just freak out and do one crazy awesome thing that knocks you out. However, if I got to pick, I'm still going with Bobby Knuckles. Just because I think style-wise, he does not give you that many chances. Uh, to to pull off that kind of a move, if you're you Romero, he's he's a careful enough fighter, a durable enough fighter. He he doesn't rely himself on having to take a whole lot of chances. He's more like just a start to finish volume guy who can beat you kind of everywhere you go and doesn't have any glaring weakness that you can capitalize on. I was interesting looking at the betting odds for this one. Uh, I. Went back and looked at the odds for UFC 213. That one, uh, Bobby Knuckles, minus 130 favorite. Uh, UL Romero, plus 110, so it was pretty close. This one, uh, UL Romero going off at 2-1 to one okay. with Bobby Knuckles at minus 225. Okay, so Bobby Knuckles getting a little bit more respect after that first win, obviously. And hey, if you got $20 you never want to see again, why not throw it down on UL Romero for, for double your money back? Well... Okay, but then you ask yourself, like, how does Yo Romero win this fight? Like, freak out? Yeah, it has My to be flying out. jump knee freak out. Next thing you know, you're standing up against the cage, and Yo Romero is kissing you and calmly expl- explaining into your ear that everything is going to be okay. <laughs> and you're looking around for your coaches like, somebody get me out of here. Right, well, we've seen, like, the where people get themselves in trouble against Yo Romero is where they have to start thinking about changing levels and looking for takedowns. He loves that, because then you're right in jumping knee range. Or where you can't do anything to back him off, where you can't stop his forward momentum at all. And one of the things that Bobby Knuckles was able to do in that first fight was to find a way to halt that momentum and to never give him an opportunity to really get going. And Yoel Romero, one of his weaknesses is he'll kind of let rounds slip away while he looks for that one big opportunity. He He's not just like a constant output kind of fighter. And I really played, I think, to Robert Whitaker's advantage. If he comes in there healthy and able, you know, and he was not totally healthy for that last fight. He talked about how he had knee problems and then right away Yuel Romero kicked him in his knee and he had to fight the rest of the, the fight dealing with that one. Uh, if he is at least as healthy as he was there, I, I don't see why we don't see a repeat of this one. Yeah, and this, uh, part of the Achilles heel of Yoel Romero has been the gas tank up to this point in his UFC career. And, <clears throat> excuse me, Robert Whitaker. Uh, has kind of a, a, I don't know if it's a bad matchup of styles, but like kind of an effective matchup of styles, if you will, against a guy like Yoel Romero, because he clearly is is perfectly capable of going out there and kind of uh, pressuring him on the feet with the strikes uh, and, you know, seeing if Yoel Romero will uh, tire out. So uh, once again, we wait to see if Yoel Romero can go the like the full 25 minutes, if that's what it takes. Uh, or if, if Robert Whitaker has found some holes in the striking game, the very unorthodox stand-up game of Yoel Romero that he can capitalize on. But it do, you're right, I think it does seem like, especially now that we've seen the fight one time, it feels like a healthy Robert Whitaker 
not only has the tools, but has like a, a, an able style to s- exploit the weaknesses of Yoel Romero. The question is, does this, if he goes out there and he beats him again, does this do anything more to get people to think of him as the real and only middleweight champion at this point? Because it is kind of like a, a bad deal for him where he had the interim title. He didn't get a chance to unify it with the actual title since George St. Pierre decided he was taking the belt and going home. And then you get to have a rematch of the guy you beat for the interim title as like your first actual title defense. It seems like it does not give you that opportunity to really prove to anybody who was, you know, questioning whether opening openly or just kind of like internally that you are the guy at middleweight. Yeah. Well, Robert Whitaker's in kind of a tough position, right? As the UFC middleweight champion, it feels like. Uh, the possibility of a fight against George St. Pierre has kind of sailed away on him, not only because George St. Pierre is out of action uh, with his own health issues, but like the the popular opinion now has kind of shifted to the idea of like George St. Pierre even going down to lightweight to fight either Conor McGregor or uh, Habib Nurmagomedov, depending on which one of those guys is the champion, which one of those guys can present the bigger fight for him. So like... Uh, the idea of George St. Pierre soldiering on at 185 pounds, I think, uh, doesn't seem like it's anyone's first choice at this point. And that puts Bobby Knuckles in a weird position where not only does he have to fight Yoel Romero a second time, uh, you know, for his title defense, but also you look around the upper echelon of the middleweight division. And after the, the departure of Michael Bisping, like there's just a lot of uncertainty there. You just had Luke Rockhold get knocked out by Yoel Romero. Chris Weidman seems like perennially kind of stuck in, in, uh, stasis. Uh, Kelvin Gastelum is doing good things and, and making himself available. So, you know, that that's a potential future opponent for Robert Whitaker. But again, you know, let's say Robert Whitaker does something highlight real worthy to Yoel Romero. And like I said, at the top of the round, I feel like at least among hardcore fans, we are ready uh, for, for Robert Whitaker to kind of take the belt and run with it. Like yeah. he seems like a guy we can all agree on. He seems like a genuinely likable dude. Clearly he's very skilled. He's fun to watch fight. He can knock people out. We're all on board with the Robert Whitaker train. But again, even if he beats Yoel Romero and gets himself, let's say into a title defense against Kelvin Gastelum, aren't we having this same conversation? Like, what does that matchup really do for, for Robert Whitaker's profile? Yeah, that's true. Uh, See, so what you're saying is that he needs to uh, beat up Daniel Cormier. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah. Why not? Daniel yeah. Cormier jumping around. Sure. Let's either have it at, at uh, 205 or let's do it open weight. Open weight. And then the winner of that can win the Bellator tournament. Open weight, bare knuckle. There there we go. We got to know. This shit is easy. We got it figured out. <laughs> What's our percentage here? We're going to take 40%. Wow. Because that's, that's how, ambitious. That is how good the ideas are, my friend. See, I see what you did. You started at 40, so there's room for us to negotiate down if we have to and that's still right. come away. That's right. Yeah. Uh, you want to do just saying stuff, or yes, is there I anything do. else you want to talk about here with the uh, the UFC 225 main event? Let's do just saying stuff. All right, Ben, what's your just saying stuff this week? Well, Chad, I know you heard about the controversy of coming out of uh, the camp with Andrea Lee, her her coach and husband, Donnie Aaron, uh, who, as we saw uh, in a picture of them having some fun out at the lake, people notice, hey, he seems to have some Nazi tattoos. Got a swastika on one forearm, got SS on the other one. And uh, then people were like, hey, what the hell? Are you guys Nazis? First of all, I'm just saying... In her first response to this, Andrea Lee referred to people uh, who were upset about this as sensitive-ass mofos, which 
I'm just saying, yeah, people are going to get a little sensitive about Nazi ideology. Uh, that, that makes sense. Also, uh, in her first response said, neither one of us are racist. We have an Asian and a black guy that live with us. Oh, well, case closed then. I guess that does it. Uh, but then I'm also just saying, first, her husband replied saying that he, if it were possible to get the tattoos removed or covered up, he would do it. But it's not. But it is. It It is. And many easily done ways you could have those things covered up. And then finally, Andrea Lee, apparently somebody told her or she realized that maybe the sensitive-ass mofo's response was not the best way to go with it. And so then came a more lengthy apology. Uh, and here's here's an excerpt from it. I'm truly responding. I'm truly sorry for responding the other day the way I did. If you think I don't care, I do. I'm not racist. I'm not a Nazi, and I don't hate people. Neither does Donnie. I've always believed in the golden rule: do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I personally try to live by that, and I tell my daughter that all the time. I also don't believe in hating a person for things they have done to you or things they or things they have done. Period. If I don't like someone, I never ever say I hate people or a person. If anything, I just extremely dislike a person, but never hate. I'm just saying, man, where's the editor when you need it for some of these responses and apologies? Because I feel like some of these, you're, you're starting off in a, in a decent direction when you're coming to, to deal with this stuff. And then you just keep typing, apparently, and you run into more and more trouble. Yeah. I'm just saying. Well, I don't need to talk about my theory about MMA apologies, right? Again, I've said it a bunch of times. Please do, though. Every time there is something that happens that is apology-worthy in the sport of mixed martial arts, somehow the person's response to it always makes it worse. Like they never, they <laughs> never stick the, right out the gate. They never stick the landing. It's always just makes it worse. Well, Ben, this week I'm just saying, uh, one of the fun things, Ben, about the fact that the UFC has like over 500 fighters on its roster is that when you get an event like UFC fight night, one thirty one at Utica, sometimes you get surprised. You like you get to have this thing where you're like, oh, I totally forgot this guy's still around, right? Yeah. And sometimes it's fun, like when Ben Saunders shows up at UFC Fight Night 131, and you're like, oh shit, Ben Saunders, Killer B, that's awesome, he's still around. And sometimes it's not as fun, and that's when you say, oh, Jake Ellenberger is still around, huh? That oh. seems troubling. Oh. And then Jake Ellenberger goes out and gets stopped, knee straight to the liver. By Ben Saunders. But then you're happy again because Ben Saunders is so fired up. I'm just saying, man. It's a roller coaster ride. It really is. Just saying. Just saying. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Remember, we are off next week, but we will be back the following Monday. Maybe to still break down stuff that happened at UFC 225. I don't know. I'm guessing probably not. I'm guessing a boatload of crazy shit will happen the week that we're off because that's how this sport do. And we'll also look ahead to the next Fight Night event coming up that Saturday night. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. So what if society just completely crumbles while you're away and this ends up being the last podcast? I feel like we went out on a high note. And people will uh, people will have the opportunity to get really into their Chuck Liddell and or Tito Ortiz autobiographies as society crumbles around them. Which, it's kind of fitting so, somehow. Yeah, like Feels fitting to me. Reading by the light of city yeah like if you if you were sitting by the window reading my fighting life by chuck liddell and in the background there was like a mushroom cloud it would feel somehow like appropriate yeah you'd feel like maybe even